Thank you for coming. This is the first of our Beato Fra Angelico Fine Arts events for the semester. Our speaker, Sarah Pecknold, holds a PhD in historical musicology with a minor in vocal performance from the Catholic University of America, where she currently serves as a lecturer um, as, uh, in the history of sacred music. Dr. Pecknold has presented at numerous conferences and inst institutions, including the Society for si 17th Century Music, the annual conference of the American Musicological Society, the International Institute for Culture, Seton Hall University's uh, Monsignor Caffon Lecture, and Princeton University's Strozzi Day, which celebrates the fourth centennial of the birth of the prolific 17th century composer Barbara Strozzi. In March of 2016, Dr. Pecknold appeared on BBC's Three, uh, Three's Composer of the Week series on the life and music of Barbara Strozzi. Her articles have appeared in the Yale Journal of Music and Religion and New Black Friars. Uh, Dr. Pecknold's current research concerns Eucharistic devotion in 17th century Venice and music in early modern mystical theology particularly in the works of St. Francis de Sales and other authors of the Counter-Reformation period. Her lecture is entitled Giovanni Tiepolo, Claudio Monteverdi, and Devotion to the Most Precious Blood in 17th Century Venice. It offers an examination of music for Christ's Passion composed by Claudio Monteverdi, who served as Maestro di Capella of the Basilica di San Marco from 1613 until his death in 1643. Dr. Pecknold will consider how these compositions resonate with Tiepolo's treatise, as well as how Monteverdi's compositions have been misrepresented in recent scholarship. What emerges is a picture of the Serene Republic as a city whose communal life is grounded in shared religious practices. The most important of these practices was the public veneration of the Passion of Christ made manifest in the Eucharist. Please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Pecknold. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Dr. Proderak, and to Christendom College for such a wonderful welcome and for the opportunity to speak to you today. I also thank the American Musicological Society and the Cosmos Club of Washington, D.C., whose generous grants helped to fund this research. All right. As many of you know, and can you hear me okay? Is that all right? Okay. As many of you must know, the rich treasury of Catholic sacred music is so vast, so excellent, and so full of unknown gems. Some of the greatest and yet often, uh, most often overlooked musical treasure, treasures of the church were composed in 16th and 17th century Venice as compliments to the many splendid ceremonies at the Basilica di San Marco. In fact, in the field of musicology, recent scholarship has shed much light upon the flourishing of Marian devotion at San Marco in the early 17th century. Apparent in the burgeoning repertory of Marian motets, frequent votive processions to Our Lady, and several ceremonies surrounding the most famous Venetian image of the Blessed Mother, the Byzantine icon of Our Lady of Victory, the Madonna Nicopea, shown here. At the same time, 
Music historians have often neglected to address early modern Venetian devotion to our Lord of evident importance to local culture. Um, and here you see, this is a very famous painting uh, by Bellini, uh, the procession of the, a relic of the true cross um, in the Piazza San Marco. Um, this relic belonged to the confraternity of uh, San Giovanni Evangelista, um, one of the great 12 um, uh, grand confraternities or great confraternities um, of Venice. Today, I will address this lacuna in Venetian sacred music research that is in regard to 17th century devotion to our Lord. Contemporaneous sources reveal that music and devotional writings concerning the passion of Christ proliferated during the first few decades of the Venetian Seicento. These artistic and literary contemplations of the passion often expound upon intensely physical aspects of the crucifixion, especially the shedding of Christ's most precious blood. To this end, Venetian printers issued a vast number of religious treatises concerning Eucharistic devotion as related to the civic religious life of the Serene Republic. Today, I aim to demonstrate that such treatises as those by prominent cleric Giovanni Tiepolo and the poet Giulio Strozzi shed light on an entire tapestry of Venetian religious and musical practices, venerating Christ's passion, especially in regard to St. Mark's most celebrated treasures relics of the blood of Christ. To this end, I will first discuss the history of these relics and how the blood of Christ is treated in Tiepolo's and Strozzi's devotional writings. I will then consider how these treatises relate to the existing sources for the liturgy of St. Mark's, which retained its localized rite, the Rito Veneto, after the Council of Trent. Finally, I will examine music composed by Claudio Monteverdi, who served as Maestro di Capella of San Marco from 1613 until 1643. Within Monteverdi's oeuvre, we find a few musical gems that are clearly related to Venetian veneration of the blood of Christ, but which modern musicologists have overlooked or misunderstood. In conclusion, we will glimpse a portrait of Venice as the city described by Dr. Poderak, whose um, inhabitants were ever aware of the veneration of the blood as a unifying force in their city and in Catholic Europe at large. Furthermore, their communal veneration affirmed Venetians' adherence to the Counter-Reformation's emphasis upon the true sacrifice of the mass and the necessity of the sacraments for the salvation of souls. According to tradition, relics of Christ's blood had made their way to Venice and nearby Mantua, at least by the 16th century. It is helpful to consider the chronology of the arrival of these relics to northern Italy and their sources. So in this list, we see so blood that actually issued from Christ's body on the cross is called precious or most precious. So prezio, uh, preziosissimo sangue in um, Mantua. And the, and the spelling, um, as it does in early modern sources, is delightfully inconsistent. So precious might be spe spelled with a T or a Z or a C sometimes. Um, so um, and then, of course, here is the, um, the saint who supposedly collected the blood or the source of the blood. So in Mantua, they had this um, relic of the preziosissimo sangue. Um, and let's see, sorry. Um, and then the one relic, which is called miraculous on the list, issued forth from a bleeding icon. So it's kind of set apart here. So um, one of the oldest relics of Christ's blood um, in Northern Italy during this time 
was under the custodianship of Sant'Andrea in Mantua in the region of Lombardy, adjacent to the Veneto. The traditional account is that St. Longino, the, sword who, uh, sorry, the soldier who pierced Jesus' side and subsequently converted to Christianity, brought the relic to Mantua, and it was thereafter lost before its rediscovery with a bit of the sponge used to offer Christ a drink during his crucifixion. And here we see Sant'Andrea, um, very important church in uh, Mantua. According, uh, sorry, okay. <laughs> also, a relic of the most precious blood was housed at the Venetian Franciscan church, Santa Maria Gloriosa dei Frari. This remnant of our Lord's blood was brought to Venice by, um, in the late 15th century by the Venetian naval commander Melchiore Trevisan. Tradition held that these drops of blood had been captured by Mary Magdalene as she knelt at the foot of Christ's cross, and that she gathered them with earth into which the blood had soaked, and thereafter infused them into an ointment. The blood was then transported from Jerusalem to Constantinople by two angels, where it was kept at the church of uh, Santa Cristina until Trevisan, in order to protect the relic from the Ottomans, took it with him on his return to Venice. On the 1st of May, 1492, an altar was dedicated and here it is kept today. So we see there's the Frari, right? Now we travel to the location of central importance for our discussion today, the Basilica di San Marco. Here there were two relics of the blood of Christ that Christ shed whilst on the cross. Authors refer to these as precious or prezioso or preziosissimo. Um, there are two. So this one, let's see, oh, this one was um, supposedly collected by Our Lady and it is mixed with water and therefore it must have issued from Christ's body after his death. Um, sorry, we'll go here. Yeah, and this is it. So, oh, no, that's the miraculous. Sorry, let's go to the most perfect. No. There are two that, have, that are mixed with water. I, I, now, and actually, if you look, so this is actually the reliquary today. Um, it's very difficult to find from the websites um, if they still have the two different relics of the most precious blood or if there's just the one. Um, there's an 1852 relation that gives the history of all these different relics. All right, so. Um, and the, the relic of the blood that's mixed with water that was supposedly collected by Our Lady is venerated on the third Friday of March, which we will see was actually the feast of the most precious blood in Venice um, for a long time. Um, also on Good Friday, which makes sense, and um, the first of July, which later came to be the universal feast of the most precious blood. Then the next um, relic of the most precious blood, which is, um, was at San Marco, was supposedly collected by St. John the Evangelist. Um, it is not mixed with water, but it is mixed with earth. This did not make its way to San Marco until um, the 17th century. So in the, the sources that I'm discussing today from the early 17th century, they did not yet have this relic in their possession. So both, both of their relics of the most precious blood, um, this that was mixed with water and the miraculous, um, both were mixed with water and we shall see why. All right, 
So the final relic of the blood at San Marco in Venice um, was called the Sangue Miraculoso, or the miraculous blood. It arrived in Venice the same year as um, the precious blood that was at the, um, that arrived for Constantinople in 1203 or 1204. However, it has a very different source. The story according to Stringa's 1604 expansion of Sansovino's monumental 16th century guide to Venice informs us that there's an ampoule of miraculous blood which tourists and pilgrims can venerate in San Marco, that with great reverence this relic is preserved in the sanctuary of San Marco, and its origins are um, known to us by a seventh century writer, uh, Pseudo-Athanasius. The history of this relic begins in Beirut. Here it was said, a Christian lived who possessed a beautiful icon of our Lord. When the Christian moved by the providence of God, the icon was left behind. It fell into the possession of Jews who took it to a local synagogue. The Jews mistreated the icon in parallel manner to the actual mistreatment of our Lord in his crucifixion. Finally, the icon was lanced. It's kind of like the, the um, climax of the story of all the mistreatment, and they finally um, lance the icon, as was Christ's body. At this moment, blood and water spewed forth from the icon. Those who were touched by the miraculous flow were converted. Therefore, whereas the relics of the blood called the precious or most precious were shed by our Lord as he hung upon the cross and before the resurrection, the miraculous blood flowed from Christ's image in an unexplicable, mysterious, and supernatural way in a manner that reminds the Christian of the mysterious, miraculous process of transubstantiation, whereby, of course, the blood of Christ comes to be present in the elements after consecration. These theological nuances were not lost on Venetians, and their awareness of these subtleties is discernible in several ways, in their writings about the relics, in their ceremonial practices, and in the music composed for the same. The veneration of these relics played an enormously important role in Venetian public religious life. In his indispensable work on music in Venetian confraternities, Jonathan Glickson has documented the involvement of one of the wealthiest and most influential Venetian confraternities, the Scuola di San Rocco, in the veneration of the Preziosissimo Sangue at the Frari. This veneration took place as part of the confraternity's customary procession to the Cathedral of San Pietro di Castello on the fourth Sunday of Lent. Um, this isn't the same procession, but it is a procession, so it gives us a picture of what might have happened. These processions included the singing of sacred devotional songs in the vernacular called laude. Although these processions ceased in the 17th century, the Church of the Frari continued to display the Preziosissimo Sangue on other occasions. At least until the 19th century, the general public could view this relic every year on Lazarus Sunday, thus named for the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And here we have the description um, of the miraculous blood. All right. But what about the relics housed at St. Mark's? That is, the two relics of the precious blood and the miraculous blood. What role did these relics play in Venetian ceremonial life? Did Venetians know or care about the distinctions between the relics in regard to their sources? What was the significance of the sensibilities associated with these different relics? 
As the Doge's chapel, San Marco was the most important church in Venice, arguably more important to Venetians than the Cathedral of San Pietro di Castello, the see of the Patriarch or Bishop of Venice. Therefore, the many expositions of the Preziosissimo Sangue and the Sangue Miracoloso at San Marco that occurred throughout the Venetian liturgical year were especially well known and well attended. One such exposition occurred annually on Holy Thursday, involving all of the city's 12 most powerful confraternities, the Scuoli Grandi. According to Giovanni Zitio's expanded 1655 edition of Sansovino's Guide to the Most Notable and Marvelous Things to See and Do in Venice, which by the way, if you like early printed books, you can go onto Google Books and just, just type in Sansovino, and, and then you can limit your time between 1600 and 1700. It will pull up really wonderful things. Okay, so here's, here's what um, Zitio tells us. During Holy Week, the Scuoli Grandi demonstrate their glory in this, that on Holy Thursday, all come at the first hour of the night, and circling around with torches ablaze, and with much devotion, they go into the church of San Marco, where one of the procuratori is in a pulpit, and shows to those who enter the blood of Christ in an ampoule. On this evening, it is forbidden for women to enter San Marco, just as it is forbidden for men to enter on the Vigil of the Ascension, when only women can enter to see the same blood. Thank you for coming. This is the first of our Beato Fra Angelico Fine Arts events for the semester. Our speaker, Sarah Pecknold, holds a PhD in Historical Musicology with a minor in vocal performance from the Catholic University of America, where she currently serves as a lecturer um, as uh, in the history of sacred music. Dr. Pecknold has presented at numerous conferences and inst institutions, including the Society for si 17th Century Music, the annual conference of the American Musicological Society, the International Institute for Culture, Seton Hall University's uh, Monsignor Cofon Lecture, and Princeton University's Strozzi Day, which celebrates the fourth centennial of the birth of the prolific 17th century composer Barbara Strozzi. In March of 2016, Dr. Pecknold appeared on BBC's Three, uh, Three's Composer of the Week series on the life and music of Barbara Strozzi. Her articles have appeared in the Yale Journal of Music and Religion and New Black Friars. Uh, Dr. Pecknold's current research concerns Eucharistic devotion in 17th century Venice and music in early modern mystical theology particularly in the works of St. Francis de Sales and other authors of the Counter-Reformation period. Her lecture is entitled Giovanni Tiepolo, Claudio Monteverdi, and Devotion to the Most Precious Blood in 17th Century Venice. It offers an examination of music for Christ's Passion composed by Claudio Monteverdi, who served as Maestro di Capella of the Basilica di San Marco from 1613 until his death in 1643. Dr. Pecknold will consider how these compositions resonate with Tiepolo's treatise, as well as how Monteverdi's compositions have been misrepresented in recent scholarship. What emerges is a picture of the Serene Republic as a city whose communal life is grounded in shared religious practices. The most important of these practices was the public veneration of the passion of Christ made manifest in the Eucharist. Please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Pecknold. Thank you so much. 
Um, thank you, Dr. Proderak, and to Christendom College for such a wonderful welcome and for the opportunity to speak to you today. I also thank the American Musicological Society and the Cosmos Club of Washington, D.C., whose generous grants helped to fund this research. All right. As many of you know, and can you hear me okay? Is that all right? Okay. As many of you must know, the rich treasury of Catholic sacred music is so vast, so excellent, and so full of unknown gems. Some of the greatest and yet often, uh, most often overlooked musical treasure, treasures of the church were composed in 16th and 17th century Venice as complements to the many splendid ceremonies at the Basilica di San Marco. In fact, in the field of musicology, recent scholarship has shed much light upon the flourishing of Marian devotion at San Marco in the early 17th century. Apparent in the burgeoning repertory of Marian motets, frequent votive processions to Our Lady, and several ceremonies surrounding the most famous Venetian image of the Blessed Mother, the Byzantine icon of Our Lady of Victory, the Madonna Nicopea, shown here. At the same time, Music historians have often neglected to address early modern Venetian devotion to our Lord of evident importance to local culture. Um, and here you see, this is a very famous painting uh, by Bellini, uh, the procession of the, a relic of the true cross um, in the Piazza San Marco. Um, this relic belonged to the confraternity of uh, San Giovanni Evangelista, um, one of the great 12 um, uh, grand confraternities or great confraternities um, of Venice. Today, I will address this lacuna in Venetian sacred music research that is in regard to 17th century devotion to our Lord. Contemporaneous sources reveal that music and devotional writings concerning the passion of Christ proliferated during the first few decades of the Venetian Seicento. These artistic and literary contemplations of the passion often expound upon intensely physical aspects of the crucifixion, especially the shedding of Christ's most precious blood. To this end, Venetian printers issued a vast number of religious treatises concerning Eucharistic devotion as related to the civic religious life of the Serene Republic. Today, I aim to demonstrate that such treatises as those by prominent cleric Giovanni Tiepolo and the poet Giulio Strozzi shed light on an entire tapestry of Venetian religious and musical practices, venerating Christ's passion, especially in regard to St. Mark's most celebrated treasures, relics of the blood of Christ. To this end, I will first discuss the history of these relics and how the blood of Christ is treated in Tiepolo's and Strozzi's devotional writings. I will then consider how these treatises relate to the existing sources for the liturgy of St. Mark's, which retained its localized rite, the Rito Veneto, after the Council of Trent. Finally, I will examine music composed by Claudio Monteverdi, who served as Maestro di Capella of San Marco from 1613 until 1643. Within Monteverdi's oeuvre, we find a few musical gems that are clearly related to Venetian veneration of the blood of Christ, but which modern musicologists have overlooked or misunderstood. In conclusion, we will glimpse a portrait of Venice as the city described by Dr. Poderek, whose um, inhabitants were ever aware of the veneration of the blood as a unifying force in their city and in Catholic Europe at large. Furthermore, their communal veneration affirmed Venetian's adherence to the Counter-Reformation's emphasis upon the true sacrifice of the Mass and the necessity of the sacraments for the salvation of souls. 
According to tradition, relics of Christ's blood had made their way to Venice and nearby Mantua, at least by the 16th century. It is helpful to consider the chronology of the arrival of these relics to Northern Italy and their sources. So in this list we see, so blood that actually issued from Christ's body on the cross is called precious or most precious. So prezio, uh, preziosissimo sangue in um, Mantua and the, and the spelling um, as it does in early modern sources is delightfully inconsistent. So precious might be sp spelled with a T or a Z or a C sometimes. Um, so, um, and then of course here is the, um, the saint who supposedly collected the blood or the source of the blood. So in Mantua, they had this um, relic of the preziosissimo sangue. Um, and let's see, sorry. Um, and then the one relic, which is called miraculous on the list, issued forth from a bleeding icon. So it's kind of set apart here. So um, one of the oldest relics of Christ's blood um, in Northern Italy during this time was under the custodianship of Sant'Andrea in Mantua in the region of Lombardy, adjacent to the Veneto. The traditional account is that St. Longino, the, sword who, uh, sorry, the soldier who pierced Jesus' side and subsequently converted to Christianity, brought the relic to Mantua, and it was thereafter lost before its rediscovery with a bit of the sponge used to offer Christ a drink during his crucifixion. And here we see Sant'Andrea. Um, very important church in uh, Mantua. According, uh, sorry, okay. <laughs> also, a relic of the most precious blood was housed at the Venetian Franciscan Church, Santa Maria Gloriosa dei Frari. This remnant of our Lord's blood was brought to Venice by, um, in the late 15th century by the Venetian naval commander Melchiore Trevisan. Tradition held that these drops of blood had been captured by Mary Magdalene as she knelt at the foot of Christ's cross, and that she gathered them with earth into which the blood had soaked, and thereafter infused them into an ointment. The blood was then transported from Jerusalem to Constantinople by two angels, where it was kept at the church of uh, Santa Cristina until Trevisan, in order to protect the relic from the Ottomans, took it with him on his return to Venice. On the 1st of May, 1492, an altar was dedicated, and here it is kept today. So we see there's the frari, right? Now we travel to the location of central importance for our discussion today, the Basilica di San Marco. Here there were two relics of the blood of Christ that Christ shed whilst on the cross. Authors refer to these as precious or prezioso or preziosissimo. Um, there are two. So this one, let's see, oh, this one was um, supposedly collected by Our Lady and it is mixed with water and therefore it must have issued from Christ's body after his death. Um, sorry, we'll go here. Yeah, and this is it. So, oh, no, that's the miraculous. Sorry, let's go to the most perfect. No. There are two that, have, that are mixed with water. I, I, now, and actually, if you look, so this is actually the reliquary today. Um, it's very difficult to find from the websites um, if they still have the two different relics of the most precious blood or if there's just the one. Um, there's an 1852 relation that gives the history of all these different relics. All right, so 
Um, and the, the relic of the blood that's mixed with water that was supposedly collected by Our Lady is venerated on the third Friday of March, which we will see was actually the feast of the most precious blood in Venice um, for a long time. Um, also on Good Friday, which makes sense, and um, the first of July, which later came to be the universal feast of the most precious blood. Then the next um, relic of the most precious blood, which is, um, was at San Marco, was supposedly collected by St. John the Evangelist. Um, it is not mixed with water, but it is mixed with earth. This did not make its way to San Marco until um, the 17th century. So in the, the sources that I'm discussing today from the early 17th century, they did not yet have this relic in their possession. So both, both of their relics of the most precious blood, um, this that was mixed with water and the miraculous, um, both were mixed with water and we shall see why. All right, so the final relic of the blood at San Marco in Venice um, was called the Sangue Miraculoso, or the Miraculous Blood. It arrived in Venice the same year as um, the Precious Blood that was at the, um, that arrived for Constantinople in 1203 or 1204. However, it has a very different source. The story according to Stringa's 1604 expansion of San Savino's monumental 16th century guide to Venice informs us that there's an ampoule of miraculous blood which tourists and pilgrims can venerate in San Marco, that with great reverence this relic is preserved in the sanctuary of San Marco, and its origins are um, known to us by a 7th century writer, uh, Pseudo-Athanasius. The history of this relic begins in Beirut. Here it was said a Christian lived who possessed a beautiful icon of our Lord. When the Christian moved by the providence of God, the icon was left behind. It fell into the possession of Jews who took it to a local synagogue. The Jews mistreated the icon in parallel manner to the actual mistreatment of our Lord in his crucifixion. Finally, the icon was lanced. It's kind of like the, the um, climax of the story of all the mistreatment, and they finally um, lance the icon as was Christ's body. At this moment, blood and water spewed forth from the icon. Those who were touched by the miraculous flow were converted. Therefore, whereas the relics of the blood called the precious or most precious were shed by our Lord as he hung upon the cross and before the resurrection, the miraculous blood flowed from Christ's image in an unexplicable, mysterious, and supernatural way in a manner that reminds the Christian of the mysterious, miraculous process of transubstantiation, whereby, of course, the blood of Christ comes to be present in the elements after consecration. These theological nuances were not lost on Venetians, and their awareness of these subtleties is discernible in several ways, in their writings about the relics, in their ceremonial practices, and in the music composed for the same. The veneration of these relics played an enormously important role in Venetian public religious life. In his indispensable work on music in Venetian confraternities, Jonathan Glickson has documented the involvement of one of the wealthiest and most influential Venetian confraternities, the Scuola di San Rocco, in the veneration of the Preziosissimo Sangue at the Frari. This veneration took place as part of the confraternity's 
customary procession to the Cathedral of San Pietro di Castello on the fourth Sunday of Lent. Um, this isn't the same procession, but it is a procession, so it gives us a picture of what might have happened. These processions included the singing of sacred devotional songs in the vernacular called laude. Although these processions ceased in the 17th century, the Church of the Frari continued to display the Preziosissimo Sangue on other occasions. At least until the 19th century, the general public could view this relic every year on Lazarus Sunday, thus named for the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And here we have the description um, of the miraculous blood. All right. But what about the relics housed at St. Mark's? That is, the two relics of the precious blood and the miraculous blood. What role did these relics play in Venetian ceremonial life? Did Venetians know or care about the distinctions between the relics in regard to their sources? What was the significance of the sensibilities associated with these different relics? As the Doge's chapel, San Marco was the most important church in Venice, arguably more important to Venetians than the Cathedral of San Pietro di Castello, the see of the Patriarch or Bishop of Venice. Therefore, the many expositions of the Preziosissimo Sangue and the Sangue Miraculoso at San Marco that occurred throughout the Venetian liturgical year were especially well known and well attended. One such exposition occurred annually on Holy Thursday, involving all of the city's 12 most powerful confraternities, the Scuoli Grandi. According to Giovanni Zitio's expanded 1655 edition of Sansovino's Guide to the Most Notable and Marvelous Things to See and Do in Venice, which by the way, if you like early printed books, you can go onto Google Books and just, just type in Sansovino, and, and then you can limit your time between 1600 and 1700. It will pull up really wonderful things. Okay, so here's, here's what um, Zitio tells us. During Holy Week, the Scuoli Grandi demonstrate their glory in this, that on Holy Thursday, all come at the first hour of the night, and circling around with torches ablaze, and with much devotion, they go into the church of San Marco, where one of the procuratori is in a pulpit, and shows to those who enter the blood of Christ in an ampoule. On this evening, it is forbidden for women to enter San Marco, just as it is forbidden for men to enter on the vigil of the Ascension, when only women can enter to see the same blood. Here we notice that it is the miraculous blood that is displayed on Holy Thursday and the vigil of the Ascension, a practice that must have grown out of the theological resonances of the miraculous, inexplicable bleeding of the icon of Beirut, with the inexplicable marvel of the institution of the Eucharist on Holy Thursday, and the mysterious promise of the bodily resurrection, visible in our Lord as he ascended. The precious blood also played a special, specific role in Venetian Christian life. Early in the 17th century, the Primicerio, the head priest of San Marco, Giovanni Tiepolo, published several devotional treatises addressing some of the most important issues for his Venetian flock, who were practicing their faith in the wake of the Reformation and the Council of Trent, as well as the papal interdict of 1606 and 1607. 
Tiepolo's writings, which are sometimes catechetical, sometimes apologetic, and always pastoral, discuss the reality of the sacraments and the effects of baptism, the nature and significance of the Eucharist, the validity of the veneration of relics, and the lives and miracles of Venetian saints, who were incidentally usually not included on the Roman calendar. Highly illuminating in regard to the veneration of the precious blood at San Marco is Tiepolo's treatise concerning the basilica's holiest and mo most treasured relics, the blood of Christ and the milk of the Madonna. So here we see this is the title page. Uh, and it gives you like a close up of the, um, like the lid of the, of the reliquary. Um, the title page of the first edition helpfully features a close-up depiction of the covering of the vessel, the Copercio del Vasetto, containing the relic of the blood, with a Greek inscription translated into Latin, indicating that Christ is the King of glory and that his blood is contained within. Um, and if we have any Greek scholars and you want to um, verify that, I will be <laughs> grateful. Okay. Um, it is perhaps a testament to the book's importance and popularity that it was published again almost immediately in a revised, expanded version. In this edition, the title page bears a depiction of the entire altar of the blood. A glance at the table of contents reveals Tiepolo's primary aims in the issuing of this book, to emphasize the importance of the veneration of relics, especially in the counter-reformation climate of the early 17th century, to explain the history of the relics of Christ's blood in Mantua and Venice, and how they came to be there, to defend the legitimacy and authenticity of these relics with reference to papal authority, and to provide the reader with a liturgical reference to the various official ceremonies honoring these relics. In regard to this last aspect, it is noteworthy that the liturgy included here is the Office of the Finding of the Blood as it was celebrated in Mantua and not in Venice. The reason for this is unclear and indeed deserves further investigation. Investigation that I hope to conduct one day. <laughs> All right. Other writings by the Primaterio urge the faithful to contemplate Christ's passion and the shedding of his blood. Perhaps the most moving of Tiepolo's treatises is his considerations of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was first published in 1610 and seems to have been reprinted at least twice. The considerazioni offer the reader instruction regarding how to meditate upon and how to imitate Christ's passion. In this treatise, Tiepolo devotes an entire chapter to the most precious blood of Christ. The reader is asked to consider aspects of Christ's blood, such as its purity, and therefore the purity of Mary's blood, from whom issued his humanity. Tiepolo explains that Christ's blood was free of the infection of the sin of Adam. This freedom from original sin renders the shedding of Christ's blood for sinful humanity all the more remarkable. This chapter repeatedly emphasizes the notion of original sin as an infection or a disease of the soul, alongside vivid descriptions of the profusion of blood loss in Christ's crucifixion. In the concluding passage, Tiepolo provides a final, brilliant variation on these themes. Consider, finally, the great charity of the beloved Son of God towards us, he who, in so many ways, copiously shed his own blood for our saving health 
Whereas men seek to spare their own blood above all things, he did not simply give it to man, but prodigiously poured forth all of his blood for your salvation, contenting himself as a merciful doctor who, in the end, lets his own blood, that we who were ill might be freed from the disease of sin and of the infection of eternal death. Tiepolo's readers were well acquainted with the practice of bloodletting, the most frequent therapeutic treatment for just about every ailment or disease, as it had been since antiquity. Many of Tiepolo's readers, readers would have had personal experiences with being bled by a physician or barber surgeon, possibly on several occasions. The opinions regarding how and where to let blood for certain conditions varied, but in general, as Karen Eckholm has explained, illness resulted from either an excess or a putrefaction of one of the four humors of the body. Bloodletting was believed to be one way to release these excessive or putrefied humors. To this end, Tiepolo marvels that Christ is the physician who can remove the mellifluous substances from the patient's body, that is, residing in his or her blood, by letting his own blood. This would be miraculous indeed. At the same time, it bears mentioning that behind Tiepolo's remarks must also lay the notion that the faithful are Christ's body, and therefore the illustration can be coherent on this level as well. One of the most Baroque aspects of Tiepolo's consideration of Christ's blood is his repeated evocation of the sheer magnitude of blood flow that occurred in the crucifixion. That is, that there is such a copious amount lost that our Lord had none left. Which This sentiment was echoed in another treatise that discusses Christ's blood, written by the somewhat libertine poet and opera librettist, Giulio Strozzi. Strozzi lived and worked in Venice all his life, but was still considered to be Florentine due to the place of his father's birth. Interestingly enough, although he was involved in the somewhat morally dubious literary academy, the Incogniti, Strozzi's writings include many sacred works in Latin and Italian, as well as the secular opera libretti for which he is famous. Among Giulio Strozzi's writings on sacred subjects is his relation of the events of Lent and Holy Week at St. Mark's, Neveri, Quaresimali, etc., which was published in 1626. This curious little book, like so many others of its time, functions as a combination of a tour guide and a devotional treatise. For each day of the Triduum, Strozzi describes the liturgical and paraliturgical events at San Marco, interpolated with Latin quotations from the Rito Veneto, the liturgy of the Ducal Chapel. Throughout his account, Giulio repeatedly emphasizes the importance of the veneration of the blood of Christ. I believe this is on your, I think this is on your handout as well. For instance, on Good Friday, Giulio provides a meditation upon the lands of St. Longino. Yeah, so on the second page of your um, handout there too, quotations from Giulio Strozzi. Of all the instruments of the passion, only the iron of the spear was named with the epithet cruel, because it pierced cruelly into Christ's dead body when our redemption had already been achieved. It increased the sorrows of Mary, this iron that because of its great size made so large a window in the sight of Christ, from which flowed waves of blood. 
Giulio's account continues with a description of the ancient custom of a procession with lit torches, after which the priest receives communion under only one species. Since on Holy Friday, the blood is not allowed. Perhaps this shows us that on this day, Christ our Lord scattered all of his most precious blood so that from his most holy body, none remained. These passages resonate with Tiepolo's remarks regarding how our Lord voluntarily lost such a great abundance and quantity of blood. In Strozzi's account, the phrase unda sanguine is derived from the Venetian rite, and therefore the reference to the preziosissimo sangue resonates loudly and clearly with the veneration of the relic of the precious blood at the Doge's Basilica. It was not only in extra or paraliturgical practices that the blood of Christ was venerated at the Basilica di San Marco. The Feast of the Most Precious Blood was an important and in modern scholarship misunderstood feature of the Venetian liturgical calendar. Since the 19th century, of course, the Roman Church has observed this feast on the 1st of July. However, in early modern Venice, the Feast of the Preziosissimo Sangue was celebrated on Friday of the third week of March. The selection of this day is significant for several reasons. First, the third Friday in March was a day of penitence within the church's great penitential season, Lent. Secondly, the observances in the weeks preceding the Feast of the Most Precious Blood form a well-ordered weekly contemplation upon the Passion in preparation for the observances of Holy Week. As stated, the Venetian Rite of San Marco was one of the few localized rites retained after the Council of Trent. According to the Venetian liturgical calendar, the progression of feast days on the Fridays of March were as follows. The first Friday was the Feast of the Five Wounds of Christ. On the second Friday, the Crown of Thorns was celebrated. And on the third Friday, San Marco celebrated the Feast of the Most Precious Blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This progression of what we might call Passion Fridays culminated on the final Friday before Passion Sunday, on which the Basilica celebrated the liturgy of the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady. Therefore, by the time that Holy Week arrived, those attending devotional and liturgical events at San Marco would have spent an entire month contemplating various components of Our Lord's Passion, his wounds, his crown of thorns, the shedding of his blood, Our Lady's exemplary response to Christ's suffering, before having ample opportunity to see and contemplate the relics of the Passion housed in San Marco, the most important of which was, of course, the sangue preziosissimo sangue. Giulio Strozzi's inclusion of quotations from the Venetian liturgy in his treatise illustrates how, for early modern Venetians, there was a certain liquidity, if you will, between liturgical practice and private devotion, one flowing from and into the other. Early modern sources also reveal that musical contemplation of our Lord's passion frequently, if not always, accompanied expositions of the body and blood of Christ, both in blood relics and in the Eucharist, as well as the display of other relics associated with our Lord's death. So now we will consider some works by Claudio Monteverdi, who was and remains the most celebrated composer of San Marco in the 17th century. Monteverdi, a prolific composer of secular madrigals as well as sacred music, held a position at the Mantuan court before being appointed to the very prestigious post of Maestro di Capella of St. Mark's, a capacity in which he served from 1613 until his death in 1643. 
Incidentally, um, uh, Monteverdi wrote about undergoing bloodletting himself <laughs> when he was ill and staying at his father's house in 1608, having been overworked into ill health and exhaustion in his musical duties at the court of Mantua. Monteverdi's sacred oeuvre has long vexed musicologists for several reasons. In the first instance, he published only two significant collections of liturgical works during his lifetime. The Mass and Vespers of the Virgin of 1610, which you may know, people call it the 1610 Vespers, um, not composed for Venice, even though recently on Facebook, I saw a dear friend of mine made that mistake. <laughs> so actually probably composed for Mantua. And the Silva Morale of 1641, in addition to individual works that appeared in such anthologies as Giulio Cesare Bianchi's Libro Primo di Motetti of 1620. Um, and I should just mention, you may be familiar with the term motet, um, but just to clarify, in the 17th century, a motet is an extra liturgical work that does not have a set place in the liturgy, um, but should be based upon liturgical texts and or scripture. Um, they're also, uh, it should proceed in the same order as the, the liturgy, and sometimes there will be interpolations of freely written poetry. That was sort of frowned upon, but it did happen. Um, and um, the more traditional style motet, we think of a palestrina style motet, which is polyphonic and choral. Um, but in the 17th century, there is this burgeoning of solo motets or maybe duets that had basso continuo, which is the newly invented independent instrumental accompaniment line that made many things possible that hadn't been done before in musical composition. So um, motets could be performed at a few places within the liturgy, for example, at the elevation of the host, or they could be performed outside the liturgy in devotional practices, processions, etc. In his first anthology of motets, Bianchi included a work by Monteverdi for six voices and basso continuo, Adoramus Te, which at first appearance seems to be drawn from the liturgy of the Triduum, as well as the Feast of the Holy Cross. The text is nearly identical to that of an antiphon for Good Friday, which has been set to music by dozens of well-known composers, including William Byrd um, and Claudio Marullo. However, a comparison of the texts reveals that there are distinct differences between the antiphons for the Feast of the Holy Cross, Good Friday, and the text of Monteverdi's motet in Bianchi's anthology. So we see in this, I believe this is on your handout as well. So the typical text for the Feast of the Cross and Good Friday is Adoramus te Christe benedicimus tibi quia per sanctum crucem by your Holy Cross, you know, has redeemed the world. So, um, and here's the Feast of the Most Precious Blood, and the, um, basically follows this, um, and here's Monteverdi's text. Quia per sanguinem tuum preziosum redimisti mundum. So there's this one, there's this just slight difference, who by your holy cross, who by your precious blood has redeemed the world. Um, and also the sources for the liturgy of St. Mark's are incredibly frustrating to deal with. Um, so there's no one ever just printed them all together, um, but there is, um, there is actually a good, a, a good collection, but even in the, in the good modern edition, he, he does not provide all of the texts. So 
Um, but they're in a lot of different places, a manuscript here, a printed book here. Um, so you have to kind of poke around Venice until you find what you're looking for. All right. It is clear from Giulio Cattin's edition of the Liturgy of San Marco that the text for Monteverdi's setting is taken from the versicle in response at Vespers on the Feast of the Most Precious Blood, which as we know was the third Friday in March and not the first of July. On this day, the sources tell us the versicle Adoramus Te Criste was sung with the response Quia Sanguinem. And this is the best part. Here we notice that it is, it is the miraculous blood that is displayed on Holy Thursday and the Vigil of the Ascension, a practice that must have grown out of the theological resonances of the miraculous, inexplicable bleeding of the icon of Beirut with the inexplicable marvel of the institution of the Eucharist on Holy Thursday and the mysterious promise of the bodily resurrection visible in our Lord as he ascended. The precious blood also played a special, specific role in Venetian Christian life. Early in the 17th century, the primicerio, the head priest of San Marco, Giovanni Tiepolo, published several devotional treatises addressing some of the most important issues for his Venetian flock, who were practicing their faith in the wake of the Reformation and the Council of Trent, as well as the papal interdict of 1606 and 1607. Tiepolo's writings, which are sometimes catechetical, sometimes apologetic, and always pastoral, discuss the reality of the sacraments and the effects of baptism, the nature and significance of the Eucharist, the validity of the veneration of relics, and the lives and miracles of Venetian saints, who were incidentally usually not included on the Roman calendar. Highly illuminating in regard to the veneration of the precious blood at San Marco is Tiepolo's treatise concerning the basilica's holiest and most, most treasured relics, the blood of Christ and the milk of the Madonna. So here we see this is the title page. Uh, and it gives you like a close-up of the, um, like the lid of the, of the reliquary. Um, the title page of the first edition helpfully features a close-up depiction of the covering of the vessel, the Copercchio del Vasetto, containing the relic of the blood, with a Greek inscription translated into Latin, indicating that Christ is the King of glory and that his blood is contained within. Um, and if we have any Greek scholars and you want to um, verify that, I will be <laughs> grateful. Okay. Um, it is perhaps a testament to the book's importance and popularity that it was published again almost immediately in a revised, expanded version. In this edition, the title page bears a depiction of the entire altar of the blood. A glance at the table of contents reveals Tiepolo's primary aims in the issuing of this book, to emphasize the importance of the veneration of relics, especially in the counter-reformation climate of the early 17th century, to explain the history of the relics of Christ's blood in Mantua and Venice, and how they came to be there, to defend the legitimacy and authenticity of these relics with reference to papal authority, and to provide the reader with a liturgical reference to the various official ceremonies honoring these relics. In regard to this last aspect, it is noteworthy that the liturgy included here is the Office of the Finding of the Blood as it was celebrated in Mantua and not in Venice. The reason for this is unclear and indeed deserves further investigation investigation that I hope to conduct one day. We'll see. <laughs> All right. 
Other writings by the Primaterio urge the faithful to contemplate Christ's passion and the shedding of his blood. Perhaps the most moving of Tiepolo's treatises is his considerations of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was first published in 1610 and seems to have been reprinted at least twice. The considerazioni offer the reader instruction regarding how to meditate upon and how to imitate Christ's passion. In this treatise, Tiepolo devotes an entire chapter to the most precious blood of Christ. The reader is asked to consider aspects of Christ's blood, such as its purity, and therefore the purity of Mary's blood, from whom issued his humanity. Tiepolo explains that Christ's blood was free of the infection of the sin of Adam. This freedom from original sin renders the shedding of Christ's blood for sinful humanity all the more remarkable. This chapter repeatedly emphasizes the notion of original sin as an infection or a disease of the soul, alongside vivid descriptions of the profusion of blood loss in Christ's crucifixion. In the concluding passage, Tiepolo provides a final, brilliant variation on these themes. Consider, finally, the great charity of the beloved Son of God towards us, he who, in so many ways, copiously shed his own blood for our saving health. Whereas men seek to spare their own blood above all things, he did not simply give it to man, but prodigiously poured forth all of his blood for your salvation, contenting himself as a merciful doctor who, in the end, lets his own blood, that we who were ill might be freed from the disease of sin and of the infection of eternal death. Tiepolo's readers were well acquainted with the practice of bloodletting, the most frequent therapeutic treatment for just about every ailment or disease, as it had been since antiquity. Many of Tiepolo's readers, readers would have had personal experiences with being bled by a physician or barber surgeon, possibly on several occasions. The opinions regarding how and where to let blood for certain conditions varied, but in general, as Karen Ekholm has explained, illness resulted from either an excess or a putrefaction of one of the four humors of the body. Bloodletting was believed to be one way to release these excessive or putrefied humors. To this end, Tiepolo marvels that Christ is the physician who can remove the mellifluous substances from the patient's body that is residing in his or her blood by letting his own blood. This would be miraculous indeed. At the same time, it bears mentioning that behind Tiepolo's remarks must also lay the notion that the faithful are Christ's body, and therefore the illustration can be coherent on this level as well. One of the most Baroque aspects of Tiepolo's consideration of Christ's blood is his repeated evocation of the sheer magnitude of blood flow that occurred in the crucifixion. That is, that there is such a copious amount lost that our Lord had none left. Which? This sentiment was echoed in another treatise that discusses Christ's blood written by the somewhat libertine poet and opera librettist, Giulio Strozzi. Strozzi lived and worked in Venice all his life, but was still considered to be Florentine due to the place of his father's birth. Interestingly enough, although he was involved in the somewhat morally dubious literary academy, the Incogniti, Strozzi's writings include many sacred works in Latin and Italian, as well as the secular opera libretti for which he is famous. 
Among Giulio Strozzi's writings on sacred subjects is his relation of the events of Lent and Holy Week at St. Mark's, Neveri, Quaresimali, etc., which was published in 1626. This curious little book, like so many others of its time, functions as a combination of a tour guide and a devotional treatise. For each day of the Triduum, Strozzi describes the liturgical and paraliturgical events at San Marco, interpolated with Latin quotations from the Rito Veneto, the liturgy of the Ducal Chapel. Throughout his account, Giulio repeatedly emphasizes the importance of the veneration of the blood of Christ. I believe this is on your, I think this is on your handout as well. For instance, on Good Friday, Giulio provides a meditation upon the lands of St. Longino. Yeah, so on the second page of your um, handout there too, quotations from Giulio Strozzi. Of all the instruments of the passion, only the iron of the spear was named with the epithet cruel, because it pierced cruelly into Christ's dead body when our redemption had already been achieved. It increased the sorrows of Mary, this iron that because of its great size made so large a window in the sight of Christ, from which flowed waves of blood. Julio's account continues with a description of the ancient custom of a procession with lit torches, after which the priest receives communion under only one species, since on Holy Friday the blood is not allowed. Perhaps this shows us that on this day Christ our Lord scattered all of his most precious blood, so that from his most holy body none remained. These passages resonate with Tiepolo's remarks regarding how our Lord voluntarily lost such a great abundance and quantity of blood. In Strozzi's account, the phrase unda sanguine is derived from the Venetian rite, and therefore the reference to the preziosissimo sangue resonates loudly and clearly with the veneration of the relic of the precious blood at the Doge's Basilica. It was not only in extra or paraliturgical practices that the blood of Christ was venerated at the Basilica di San Marco. The Feast of the Most Precious Blood was an important and in modern scholarship misunderstood feature of the Venetian liturgical calendar. Since the 19th century, of course, the Roman Church has observed this feast on the 1st of July. However, in early modern Venice, the Feast of the Preziosissimo Sangue was celebrated on Friday of the third week of March. The selection of this day is significant for several reasons. First, the third Friday in March was a day of penitence within the church's great penitential season, Lent. Secondly, the observances in the weeks preceding the Feast of the Most Precious Blood form a well-ordered weekly contemplation upon the Passion in preparation for the observances of Holy Week. As stated, the Venetian Rite of San Marco was one of the few localized rites retained after the Council of Trent. According to the Venetian liturgical calendar, the progression of feast days on the Fridays of March were as follows. The first Friday was the Feast of the Five Wounds of Christ. On the second Friday, the Crown of Thorns was celebrated. And on the third Friday, San Marco celebrated the Feast of the Most Precious Blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This progression of what we might call Passion Fridays culminated on the final Friday before Passion Sunday, on which the Basilica celebrated the liturgy of the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady. Therefore, 
By the time that Holy Week arrived, those attending devotional and liturgical events at San Marco would have spent an entire month contemplating various components of our Lord's passion, his wounds, his crown of thorns, the shedding of his blood, Our Lady's exemplary response to Christ's suffering, before having ample opportunity to see and contemplate the relics of the Passion housed in San Marco, the most important of which was, of course, the Sangue Preziosissimo Sangue. Giulio Strozzi's inclusion of quotations from the Venetian liturgy in his treatise illustrates how, for early modern Venetians, there was a certain liquidity, if you will, between liturgical practice and private devotion, one flowing from and into the other. Early modern sources also reveal that musical contemplation of our Lord's passion frequently, if not always, accompanied expositions of the body and blood of Christ, both in blood relics and in the Eucharist, as well as the display of other relics associated with our Lord's death. So now we will consider some works by Claudio Monteverdi, who was and remains the most celebrated composer of San Marco in the 17th century. Monteverdi, a prolific composer of secular madrigals as well as sacred music, held a position at the Mantuan court before being appointed to the very prestigious post of Maestro di Capella of St. Mark's, a capacity in which he served from 1613 until his death in 1643. Incidentally, um, uh, Monteverdi wrote about undergoing bloodletting himself when he was ill and staying at his father's house in 1608, having been overworked into ill health and exhaustion in his musical duties at the court of Mantua. Monteverdi's sacred oeuvre has long vexed musicologists for several reasons. In the first instance, he published only two significant collections of liturgical works during his lifetime the Mass and Vespers of the Virgin of 1610, which you may know, people call it the 1610 Vespers, Um, not composed for Venice, even though recently on Facebook, I saw a dear friend of mine made that mistake. (laughs) So actually probably composed for Mantua. And the Selva Morale of 1641, in addition to individual works that appeared in such anthologies as Giulio Cesare Bianchi's Libro Primo di Motetti of 1620. Um, And I should just mention, you may be familiar with the term motet, um, but just to clarify, in the 17th century, a motet is an extra liturgical work that does not have a set place in the liturgy, um, but should be based upon liturgical texts and or scripture. Um, They're also, uh, it should proceed in the same order as the, the liturgy, and sometimes there will be interpolations of freely written poetry. That was sort of frowned upon, but it did happen. Um, and um, the more traditional style motet, we think of a palestrina style motet, which is polyphonic and choral. Um, but in the 17th century, there is this burgeoning of solo motets or maybe duets that had basso continuo, which is the newly invented independent instrumental accompaniment line that made many things possible that hadn't been done before in musical composition. So um, motets could be performed at a few places within the liturgy, for example, at the elevation of the host, or they could be performed outside the liturgy in devotional practices, processions, etc. In his first anthology of motets, Bianchi included a work by Monteverdi for six voices and basso continuo, Adoramus Te, which at first appearance seems to be drawn from the liturgy of the Triduum, as well as the Feast of the Holy Cross. 
The text is nearly identical to that of an antiphon for Good Friday, which has been set to music by dozens of well-known composers, including William Byrd um, and Claudio Marullo. However, a comparison of the texts reveals that there are distinct differences between the antiphons for the Feast of the Holy Cross, Good Friday, and the text of Monteverdi's motet in Bianchi's anthology. So we see in this, I believe this is on your handout as well. So the typical text for the Feast of the Cross and Good Friday is Adoramus te Christi e benedicimus tibi quia per sanctum crucem by your Holy Cross, you know, has redeemed the world. So, um, and here's the Feast of the Most Precious Blood, and the, um, basically follows this, um, and here's Monteverdi's text. Quia per sanguinem tuum preziosum redimisti mundum. So there's this one, there's this, this slight difference, who by your holy cross, who by your precious blood has redeemed the world. Um, and also the sources for the liturgy of St. Mark's are incredibly frustrating to deal with. Um, so there's, no one ever just printed them all together, um, but there is, um, there is actually a good, a, a good collection, but even in the, in the good modern edition, he, he does not provide all of the text, so. Um, but they're in a lot of different places, a manuscript here, a printed book here. Um, so you have to kind of poke around Venice until you find what you're looking for. All right. It is clear from Giulio Cattin's edition of the Liturgy of San Marco that the text for Monteverdi's setting is taken from the versicle in response at Vespers on the Feast of the Most Precious Blood, which as we know was the third Friday in March and not the first of July. On this day, the sources tell us the versicle Adoramus Te Christe was sung with the response Quia Sanguinem. And this is the best part. However, was Monteverdi's setting actually performed in the liturgy? Well, let us hear and see what we think.
the composer's letters may provide a clue in regard to the performance context of this piece. On April 21st of 1618, Monteverdi wrote to Prince Vincenzo Gonzaga of Mantua that he could not immediately set to work composing music for an opera about Andromeda due to his relentless compositional duties at the Basilica. He wrote to the Duke that, quote, on Thursday week, which is Holy Cross Day, that is uh, the 3rd of May, the most holy blood will be displayed, and I shall have to be ready with a concerted mass, which means with instruments, and motets for the entire day, inasmuch as it will also be displayed throughout that day on the altar in the middle of St. Mark's, set up high especially. In his commentary on this letter, Dennis Stevens acknowledges that Monteverdi's setting of Adoramus Te Criste may have been composed for this particular occasion. However, Stevens does not address the peculiar departure from the traditional text, that is, that in Monteverdi's version, it is the blood rather than the cross which is praised as redeeming humankind. Well, we know they go together, but. So this is where we encounter what appears to be um, a rather significant mistake in recent scholars' understanding of the liturgical calendar of San Marco and the Feast of the Most Precious Blood in general. In fact, Bianchi's anthology includes two settings of very similar texts by Monteverdi, one which includes the text for the Holy Cross and one for the Most Precious Blood. Without offering any other explanation, Dennis Stevens has mistakenly, as far as I can discern, written that July 1st was the Feast of the Most Precious Blood. This contradicts all contemporaneous sources, which indicate that in Venice, the Feast of the Most Precious Blood occurred in late March. So I, th I think maybe it's just the case of a modern musicologist sitting down with a Lieber and opening it up and saying, oh, 1st of, of July, <laughs> that must be the Feast of the Most Precious Blood. Um, and of course, there's the added complication that um, at St. Mark's, the precious blood was exposed, you know, it was on an exposition on the, um, this, the feast of the invention of the cross. So it leaves us, we still don't know exactly which version of the motet would have been performed. Um, now I know we're, we're coming to, we're short on time. Um, I do want to, I do want to just share one other thing with you. Giulio Strozzi had a daughter who was a prolific composer. She has also caused um, musicologists some consternation uh, because she seems to have had a somewhat liberal lifestyle, I guess. Um, but she published these 14 really passionately religious motets right in the middle of her career, the year before her daughters entered a Franciscan convent. She, was, um, she herself was illegitimate, and something that was going on in 17th century Venice is if you're an illegitimately born woman, um, you really had the two choices of courtesanship or religious life. And it really seems that her father, Giulio Strozzi, kind of groomed her for the former, and she had these four illegitimate children. But I find it very moving that when it was time for her own daughters to kind of make their way in the world, she, um, she chose religious life for them. Um, and so she kind of like gave them, you know, she gave them a better life than she herself had. But she has these amazing motets to the Blessed Sacrament. And especially this one in particular, Salve Sancte Caro, um, paraphrases Aquinas um, sermons, you know, the, the liturgy for Corpus Christi. So it paraphrases, it has this recurring refrain, Salve Sancta Caro, um, and then in between the refrain, it has these recitative sections, which paraphrase the lessons for matins for the Feast of Corpus Christi. And in one particular, um, there's a real profusion of blood which is shed, and we can hear it in the music, so I, I wanna close with that, actually. 
someone else working in, she would have grown up while Monteverdi was a bit older. And in fact, she and her father and Monteverdi collaborated, and he even came to some meetings at their house, so. And we'll give it to that. Oh, sorry. I I hope you heard how long that melisma is on the word poculum. <laughs> the, the chalice overflows indeed. Um, and this is also really epitomizes the glory of the 17th century solo motet. These motets are just stunning. They're long. They um, paraphrase or quote the liturgy. Um, and um, yeah, they're just really beautiful works of music that a lot of people don't know these days. All right, so in closing, I'll, um, just a few closing remarks. At the Basilica di San Marco, the faithful were frequently invited to submerge themselves in contemplations of Christ's passion. The intense contemplation of the crucified Christ that occurred in liturgical celebrations was encouraged in treatises by writers as Tiepolo and Giulio Strozzi, and it was facilitated by the visual contemplation of holy relics, most notably the Sangue Miraculosa and the Sangue Preziosissimo, Preziosissimo Sangue. The liturgies of the Fridays in March offered a guided journey through these acts of contemplation, first in the veneration of Christ's five wounds, secondly in honor of the crown of thorns, and finally in the adoration of Christ's blood as the panacea for the disease of original sin. The localized nature of the Venetian rite after the Council of Trent has obscured our understanding of the Feast of the Most Precious Blood and the possible intention of some of Monteverdi's works. But I hope that today we have shed a little light on some remarkable music by exceptional composers whose sacred works provide vibrant, inextricable threads within the rich tapestry of the communal religious life of 17th century Venice. Thank you. Absolutely, and, um, and I'm sorry, we've gone to... I would like to start with uh, a question that perhaps people need answered. Um, what, could you describe for us what a musicologist is exactly? <clears throat> Great, yes, so what is a musicologist? Yes, I said that um, to one of my husband's college friends uh, when I started my career in musicology and, and he laughed. He didn't think it was really a thing. Um, it is a thing. Um, so musicologists, traditionally there are two branches of musicology, um, um, theoretical musicology and historical th uh, musicology. And at Catholic University we used to offer 
two PhDs, um, one in musicology with a theory track and the other was a history track. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case. Um, however, nowadays, usually musicologist is, is used to refer to music historians. And what I have learned as I've gone along is that music historians we have to know our theory, but the theorists don't necessarily have to know their history. <laughs> so it makes our job a, a little tougher. Um, but of course, what we try to do is look at this music knowing that it is not composed in a vacuum. So we have to take into account everything going on while the music is composed, where it is performed. And of course, you can focus on all sorts of different um, veins of, of context, really, for this music. And I um, really like to focus on um, liturgical and um, devotional connections. So for example, but also you know, just basically uh, what's going on in society. So for my dissertation, I wrote about Barbara Strozzi's motets. And so I knew that she had dedicated them to the Archduchess of Innsbruck. So I tried to, you know, here's a motet to St. Anthony. I wanted to know of Padua. I wanted to know everything that was going on in regard to devotion to St. Anthony of Padua in Venice and also in Innsbruck. And what I found was, this really actually is very cool, um, is that they both had altars. Both cities had altars to St. Anthony of Padua dedicated basically at the same time that Venetians, there was a translation of St. Anthony's, um, some of his relics from Padua um, in petition for intercession during the War of Crete, at the same time that there is a confraternity to St. Anthony of Padua founded in Innsbruck. So once you start like peeling back the layers, you see that there are all these correspondences going on. It's really fascinating. Um, another thing I, I did is I just sat down with Google Books and with the Tridentine, um, the, mo the, the edition of the Tridentine um, Missal and um, breviary that she would have had. And I just kind of read through all my feast days to see what, where the correspondences were. Um, so that's an example. But you know, people can look at all kinds of things. I hope that answers your question. So there are other questions or comments or, or wisdom you can add. Yes? This is, I don't know if you know the answer, but it's sort of um, stuck out in the first page here. Yes. Okay, sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Can you see, can you see that one more time? The um, very first page. Yes. So in the evening, it's forbidden for women to enter yes. San Marco, just as it's forbidden for men to enter on the picture of the ascension. So, yes, isn't that interesting? I mean, they, I, I love that, actually, because um, they're Italian. <laughs> so, so, like, thinking this through, like, this is a really sacred event, and like all these nations are going to be crowding in. We just want to make sure that nothing goes awry, you know. Um, and actually, a comment I made in my dissertation is that that I just liked that I liked the um, kind of nod to purity. I think that is here with this. Um, you know, it's going to be dark. It's nighttime. It'll be very crowded, um, and we just want to make sure that that everyone is here for the right reason. Isn't that? Yeah. It reminds me of I mean, anyone who's, who's been to Rome, say, to a papal mass in the piazza 
knows that there's no Anglo-Saxon orderliness about uh, what they're doing, <laughs> right? It's like people in the back yeah. are trying to get there first, it's better. Yes. And they push and they shove. So I wonder if that's, that's part of this regulation sure. going on. Sure. And that's the thing is you see, I mean, Venice as a republic um, protected women so beautifully. Um, it was one place where the state had all, it did actually have mechanisms in place. I say the two options were religious life and courtesanship, but actually for, um, actually for reform prostitutes, there were institutions where one could go um, to reform one's life. And I mean, there are so many mechanisms in place for the, to help and protect women. And in fact, the most famous courtesan, Veronica Franco, she established um, a fund to help um, like illegitimately born women or women who wouldn't have otherwise had a dowry have a dowry to marry. Because that was really the, that, that was a problem that, that dowries had become very expensive, especially for the nobility. So, all right. Other questions? Yes. Sorry, I felt just curiosity. When did dowries go out of control in Venice? Sorry? Case? When did? You mentioned that the dowries When did they go out of control in Venice? Is this a law or is this a That's a great, so I, I, I think it was really the Renaissance, okay. I think. But to tell you the truth, I don't know much about the dowry system before the Renaissance. I think it's the Renaissance. And there, there's a book um, that I really dislike about this. <laughs> um, and I think it's called um, something, uh, the, yeah, um, I, I'm sure it's in, somewhere in my um, bibliographies. But um, there is a woman who wrote a book about this system. Um, she's very anti-Catholic. And so I have to, you know, you sort of have to take what she says with a grain of salt. But, but the facts that she includes can be kind of helpful. Um, the main thing by, by the 17th century, um, so, is in the, so the, in the 15th century, they, they were tightening up restrictions on who could be counted as a noble Venetian. Um, so the nobili, of course, were part of, and they, that was the class they were allowed to serve in the government. So you, usually it's described as an oligarchy. Of course, they themselves called it a republic. <laughs> um, um, so they were tightening, they were tightening those restrictions. Um, and somehow, a part of this process came about that noble women could not marry down, but noble men could. Um, to a certain point. However, was Monteverdi's setting actually performed in the liturgy? Well, let us hear and see what we think.
The composer's letters may provide a clue in regard to the performance context of this piece. On April 21st of 1618, Monteverdi wrote to Prince Vincenzo Gonzaga of Mantua that he could not immediately set to work composing music for an opera about Andromeda due to his relentless compositional duties at the Basilica. He wrote to the Duke that, quote, on Thursday week, which is Holy Cross Day, that is uh, the 3rd of May, the most holy blood will be displayed, and I shall have to be ready with a concerted mass, which means with instruments, and motets for the entire day, inasmuch as it will also be displayed throughout that day on the altar in the middle of St. Mark's, set up high especially. In his commentary on this letter, Dennis Stevens acknowledges that Monteverdi's setting of Adoramus Te Criste may have been composed for this particular occasion. However, Stevens does not address the peculiar departure from the traditional text, that is, that in Monteverdi's version, it is the blood rather than the cross which is praised as redeeming humankind. Well, we know they go together, but. So this is where we encounter what appears to be um, a rather significant mistake in recent scholars' understanding of the liturgical calendar of San Marco and the Feast of the Most Precious Blood in general. In fact, Bianchi's anthology includes two settings of very similar texts by Monteverdi, one which includes the text for the Holy Cross and one for the Most Precious Blood. Without offering any other explanation, Dennis Stevens has mistakenly, as far as I can discern, written that July 1st was the Feast of the Most Precious Blood. This contradicts all contemporaneous sources, which indicate that in Venice, the Feast of the Most Precious Blood occurred in late March. So I, th I think maybe it's just the case of a modern musicologist sitting down with a lieber and opening it up and saying, oh, 1st of, of July, <laughs> that must be the Feast of the Most Precious Blood. Um, and of course, there's the added complication that um, at St. Mark's, the precious blood was exposed, you know, it was on an exposition on the, the, um, this, the feast of the invention of the cross. So it leads us, we still don't know exactly which version of the motet would have been performed. Uh, now, I know we're, we're coming to, we're short on time. Um, I, do want to, I do want to just share one other thing with you. Giulio Strozzi had a daughter who was a prolific composer. She has also caused um, musicologists some consternation uh, because she seems to have had a somewhat liberal lifestyle, I guess. Um, but she published these 14 really passionately religious motets right in the middle of her career, the year before her daughters entered a Franciscan convent. She, was, um, she herself was illegitimate, and something that was going on in 17th century Venice is if you're an illegitimately born woman, um, you really had the two choices of courtesanship or religious life. And it really seems that her father, Giulio Strozzi, kind of groomed her for the former, and she had these four illegitimate children. But I find it very moving that when it was time for her own daughters to kind of make their way in the world, she, um, she chose religious life for them. Um, and so she kind of like gave them, you know, she gave them a better life than she herself had. But she has these amazing motets to the Blessed Sacrament. And especially this one in particular, Salve Sancte Caro, um, paraphrases Aquinas um, sermons, you know, the, the liturgy for Corpus Christi. So it paraphrases, it has this recurring refrain, Salve Sancta Caro, um, and then in between the refrain, it has these recitative sections, which paraphrase the lessons for matins for the Feast of Corpus Christi. And in one particular, um, there's a real profusion of blood which is shed, and we can hear it in the music. So I, I want to close with that, actually. 
someone else working in. She would have grown up while Monteverdi was a bit older. And in fact, she and her father and Monteverdi collaborated, and he even came to some meetings at their house. So, so we'll give it to that. Oh, sorry. I I hope you heard how long that melisma is on the word poculum. <laughs> the, the chalice overflows indeed. Um, and this is also really epitomizes the glory of the 17th century solo motet. These motets are just stunning. They're long. They um, paraphrase or quote the liturgy. Um, and um, yeah, they're just really beautiful works of music that a lot of people don't know these days. All right, so in closing, I'll, um, just a few closing remarks. At the Basilica di San Marco, the faithful were frequently invited to submerge themselves in contemplations of Christ's passion. The intense contemplation of the crucified Christ that occurred in liturgical celebrations was encouraged in treatises by writers as Tiepolo and Giulio Strozzi, and it was facilitated by the visual contemplation of holy relics, most notably the Sangue Miraculosa and the Sangue Preziosissimo, Preziosissimo Sangue. The liturgies of the Fridays in March offered a guided journey through these acts of contemplation, first in the veneration of Christ's five wounds, secondly in honor of the crown of thorns, and finally in the adoration of Christ's blood as the panacea for the disease of original sin. The localized nature of the Venetian rite after the Council of Trent has obscured our understanding of the Feast of the Most Precious Blood and the possible intention of some of Monteverdi's works. But I hope that today we have shed a little light on some remarkable music by exceptional composers whose sacred works provide vibrant, inextricable threads within the rich tapestry of the communal religious life of 17th century Venice. Thank you. Absolutely, and, um, and I'm sorry we've gone to... I would like to start with uh, a question that perhaps people need answered. Um, what, could you describe for us what a musicologist is exactly? <clears throat> Great, yes, so what is a musicologist? Yes, I said that um, to one of my husband's college friends uh, when I started my career in musicology and, and he laughed. He didn't think it was really a thing. Um, it is a thing. Um, so musicologists, traditionally there are two branches of musicology, um, um, theoretical musicology and historical th uh, musicology. And at Catholic University, we used to offer 
two PhDs, um, one in musicology with a theory track and the other was a history track. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case. Um, however, nowadays, usually musicologist is, is used to refer to music historians. And what I have learned as I've gone along is that music historians we have to know our theory, but the theorists don't necessarily have to know their history. <laughs> so it makes our job a, a little tougher. Um, but of course, what we try to do is look at this music knowing that it is not composed in a vacuum. So we have to take into account everything going on while the music is composed, where it is performed. And of course, you can focus on all sorts of different um, veins of, of context, really, for this music. And I um, really like to focus on um, liturgical and um, devotional connections. So for example, but also you know, just basically uh, what's going on in society. So for my dissertation, I wrote about Barbara Strozzi's motets. And so I knew that she had dedicated them to the Archduchess of Innsbruck. So I tried to, you know, here's a motet to St. Anthony. I wanted to know, of Padua, I wanted to know everything that was going on in regard to devotion to St. Anthony of Padua in Venice and also in Innsbruck. And what I found was, this really actually is very cool, um, is that they both had altars, both cities had altars to St. Anthony of Padua dedicated basically at the same time that Venetians, there was a translation of St. Anthony's, um, some of his relics from Padua um, in petition for intercession during the War of Crete, at the same time that there is a confraternity to St. Anthony of Padua founded in Innsbruck. So once you start like peeling back the layers, you see that there are all these correspondences going on. It's really fascinating. Um, another thing I, I did is I just sat down with Google Books and with the Tridentine, um, the, mo the, the edition of the Tridentine um, Missal and um, breviary that she would have had. And I just kind of read through all my feast days to see where, where the correspondences were. Um, so that's an example. But you know, people can look at all kinds of things. I hope that answers your question. So there are other questions or comments or, or wisdom you can add. Yes? This is, I don't know if you know the answer, but it's sort of um, stuck out Okay, sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Can you see, can you see that one more time? The um, very first page. Yes. So in the evening, it's forbidden for women to enter yes. San Marco, just as it's forbidden for men to enter on the picture of the ascension. So, yes, isn't that interesting? I mean, they, I, I love that, actually, because um, they're Italian. <laughs> so, so, like, thinking this through, like, this is a really sacred event, and like all these nations are going to be crowding in. We just want to make sure that nothing goes awry, you know. Um, and actually, a comment I made in my dissertation is that that I just liked that I liked the um, kind of nod to purity. I think that is here with this. Um, you know, it's going to be dark. It's nighttime. It'll be very crowded, um, and we just want to make sure that that everyone is here for the right reason. Isn't yeah. Reminds me, I mean, anyone who's, who's been to Rome, say, to a papal mass in the piazza, 
knows that there's no Anglo-Saxon orderliness about Yes. And they push and they shove. So I wonder if that's that's part of this regulation sure. going on. Sure. And that's the thing is you see, I mean Venice as a republic um, protected women so beautifully. Um, it was one place where the state had all it did actually have mechanisms in place. I say the two options were religious life and courtesanship, but actually for um, actually for reform prostitutes there were institutions where one could go um, to reform one's life and I mean there are so many mechanisms in place for the to help and protect women and in fact the most famous courtesan Veronica Franco she established um, a fund to help um, like illegitimately born women or women who wouldn't have otherwise had a dowry have a dowry to marry because that was really the that that was a problem that that dowries had become very expensive especially for the nobility so all right other questions? Yes. Sorry, I just curiosity. When did dowries go out of control in Venice? Sorry? Is, when did? You mentioned that the dowries go out When did they go out of control in Venice? Is this a lost anything, or is this a recent? That's a great. So I, I, I think it was really the Renaissance, okay. I think. But to tell you the truth, I don't know much about the dowry system before the Renaissance. I think it's the Renaissance, and there, there's a book um, that I really dislike about this, <laughs> um, and I think it's called um, something. Uh, the yeah, um, I, I'm sure it's in somewhere in my um, bibliographies. But um, there is a woman who wrote a book about this system. Um, she's very anti-Catholic, and so I have to, you know, you sort of have to take what she says with a grain of salt. But but the facts that she includes can be kind of helpful. Um, the main thing by by the 17th century, um, so is in the so the in the 15th century, they they were tightening up restrictions on who could be counted as a noble Venetian. Um, so the nobili, of course, were part, of, and they that was the class they were allowed to serve in the government. So you, usually it's described as an oligarchy. Of course, they themselves called it a republic. <laughs> um, um, so they were tightening they were tightening those restrictions, um, and somehow part of this process came about that noble women could not marry down, but noble men could um, to a certain point. However, by the I think by the 16th century. Mm, I don't know if the children would still be considered noble if the if the wife was not noble. So, without giving you a really specific answer to your question, I've given you other information. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sperling. That's that's her name. Sorry. It's uh, like Yuda something Sperling. S P R L I N G. Who wrote the book that I just like? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. We did. We didn't get to that. Um, so I didn't play that because I wanted you to hear the music by Strozzi. And I'm sorry I ran out of time. Um, if anyone has time, I can play it. So uh, this is another piece um, that actually um, one of my colleagues at Catholic University has examined. And he said he actually found something really great about it, that he believes that this was probably intended as part of the um, the celebrations, like the music that went along with the praying um, of the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, um, which I, I agree, but I also think that um, 
it just kind of like sums up that whole experience of like being overwhelmed with the contemplation of our Lord's passion, which is a very Baroque thing. Anyway, my husband and I kind of go around about this because <laughs> the, the Baroque stuff is just too, too over the top for him. And he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he, he just wants to like go, go hide away and read his Augustine after we've, <laughs> we've talked about these things, which is great, which is very important actually. Um, and these people were so indebted to Augustine anyway. Um, so, um, but yes, this is, so what this is, is this is a Latin contrafactum on um, Monteverdi's most famous opera aria that most people know as Lasciate Mi Morire from Ariana because it's actually all that survives from this opera that was composed for a Gonzaga wedding. I mean, I can play the beginning if, if we have time. Um, so sometimes the Latin text gets a little, you know, maybe edgy doctrinally because it's, but it's also because I think the librettist who was a cleric was trying, who was, adapt, who was um, adapting it into Latin, was trying to follow the original opera libretto very closely. But it's, um, the lament is a really important Baroque genre of music. And Monteverdi was a very important composer of like pioneering the way. So this is actually composed in what we call affective recitative, which is kind of, you know, quite, sort of sung speech featuring lots of like winding, like painfully chromatic lines and maybe emphasized dissonances with the continuo line, which these are the ways that Monteverdi broke the rules of 16th century counterpoint and got really criticized. And if we, if we can have coffee sometime, we'll talk about the Artusi controversy. But um, so, um, but I mean, I can play the very beginning. It's it's just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Here we go. This text is in the third Um, and usually, so usually the Italian version is it's included actually in the um, kind of well-known 26 Italian songs and arias anthology that most voice students use. But it's a really truncated version, and so when I play the whole thing, when I teach Baroque music. Um, and we're talking about how the humors have to be shocked to move the affections, and this is really good for the human person, according to their kind of neo-Aristotelian idea about um, listening to music. And um, you know, we listen to the whole thing, and 
so sad. <laughs> you know, so I always ask my students, are, are your humors shocked? Are your affections moved? Because if not, yeah, we have a problem. So, um, and also I did have a, a this was, I, um, in the past I've run a concert series at Catholic University, and I did this, we did perform the Pianto della Madonna in one of our um, Lent concerts. And sort of ironically, I didn't realize at the time, but then, I don't know, a month or two later, the student who sang this came to me and said, oh, by the way, I'm called to religious life. So it just seemed like so appropriate that she had sung um, this piece. And actually, she's, she's going to go. Um, she's just been accepted to her posthumously, which is great. So, okay. Other questions? Well, is there any other questions? Uh, we have some snacks you can partake of, and then I'm sure we'd entertain some private questions. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. <laughs> However, by the, I think by the 16th century, I don't know if the children would still be considered noble if the, if the wife was not noble. So without giving you a really specific answer to your question, I've given you other information. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sperling, that's, that's her name. Sorry. It's uh, like Yuda something Sperling, S-P-R-L-I-N-G, who wrote the book that I just like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We, did, we didn't get to that. Um, so I didn't play that because I wanted you to hear the music by Strozzi. And I'm sorry I ran out of time. Um, if anyone has time, I can play it. So uh, this is another piece um, that actually um, one of my colleagues at Catholic University has examined. And he said he actually found something really great about it, that he believes that this was probably intended as part of the, um, the celebrations, like the music that went along with the praying um, of the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, um, which I, I agree. But I also think that um, it just kind of like sums up that whole experience of like being overwhelmed with the contemplation of Our Lord's Passion, which is a very Baroque thing. Anyway, my husband and I kind of go around about this because <laughs> the, the Baroque stuff is just too, too over the top for him. And he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he, he just wants to like go go hide away and read his Augustine after we've, we've talked about these things, which is great, which is very important, actually. Um, and these people were so indebted to Augustine anyway. Um, so, um, but yes, this is, so what this is, is this is a Latin contrafactum on um, Monteverdi's most famous opera aria that most people know as Lasciate Mi Morire from Ariana because it's actually all that survives from this opera that was composed for a Gonzaga wedding. I mean, I can play the beginning if, if we have time. Um, so sometimes the Latin text gets a little, you know, maybe edgy doctrinally because it's, but it's also because I think the librettist who was a cleric was trying, who was, adapt, who was um, adapting it into Latin, was trying to follow the original opera libretto very closely. But it's, um, the lament is a really important Baroque genre of music. And Monteverdi was a very important composer of like pioneering the way. So this is actually composed in what we call affective recitative, which is kind you know, quite, sort of sung speech featuring lots of like winding, like painfully chromatic lines and maybe emphasize dissonances with the continuo line, which these are the ways that Monteverdi broke 
the rules of 16th century counterpoint and got really criticized. And if we, if we can have coffee sometime, we'll talk about the Artusi controversy. But, um, so, um, but I mean, I can play the very beginning. It's, it's just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Here we go. This text is in the third Um, and usually, so usually the Italian version is it's included actually in the um, kind of well-known 26 Italian songs and arias anthology that most voice students use. But it's a really truncated version, and so when I play the whole thing, when I teach Baroque music, um, and we're talking about how the humors have to be shocked to move the affections, and this is really good for the human person according to their kind of neo-Aristotelian idea about um, listening to music and. Um, you know, we listen to the whole thing, and it's so sad. <laughs> you know, so I always ask my students, are, are your humors shocked? Are your affections moved? Because if not, yeah, we have a problem. So, um, and also, I did have a, a this was, I, um, in the past, I've run a concert series at Catholic University, and I did this, we did perform the Pianto della Madonna in one of our um, Lent concerts. And sort of ironically, I didn't realize at the time, but then, I don't know, a month or two later, the student who sang this came to me and said, oh, by the way, I'm called to religious life. So it just seemed like so appropriate that she had sung um, this piece. And actually, she's, she's going to go. Um, she's just been accepted to her posthumously, which is great. So, okay. Other questions? Well, if there are any other questions, uh, we have some snacks you can partake of, and I'm sure we'd entertain some private questions. Absolutely. Maybe. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.